0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well...
2: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
0: Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is episode two. A minister's house might seem like an unlikely location for an outbreak of dark magic. But if we're going to pinpoint where the Salem witch trials began then a good place to start would be the home of Reverend Samuel Parris during a long and bitingly cold winter in January 1692. In order to wrap our heads around why all of this might have happened, we need to understand how events at Salem unfolded. So that's exactly what we'll be doing in this episode. To guide us through what happened that year, I sought out the help of Stacey Schiff, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and the author of Witches, Salem, 1692, A History. With her help, we can piece together a timeline of events that reveals how the strange behaviour of a couple of young girls spread like a virus, mutating and mushrooming into community-wide paranoia. Anyway, back to the Paris household, where the young girls Abigail Williams and Betty Paris were beginning to feel unwell. But this was no ordinary illness.
1: In the Paris household, there are four children. One of them is an 11-year-old niece, and the, and the second who was about to exhibit strange symptoms is a nine-year-old daughter of, the, of Reverend Paris. And the niece appears to have been afflicted first with some kind of unusual symptoms, and very quickly thereafter, Betty Paris also begins to writhe and to yelp. Both of the girls complain that they've been bitten, that they've been pinched. They talk about invisible agents. They go dumb. They fall into trances. They shudder and they spin. I mean, it's very dramatic. One of them flies into the fireplace. One of them nearly goes hurling herself down a well. Um, They make frantic, indecipherable gestures. They're paralyzed from time to time. And they make crazy, foolish-sounding speeches and flying noises as they fly across the room. So it's more than enough to upset a household.
0: What had happened to transform these two previously well-behaved girls into shrieking, writhing demons? Reverend Paris and his family were dumbfounded and most likely afraid. I think something that the record obviously has not
1: preserved is how terrifying it must have been to witness these children barking at each other and, and making sort of animal noises and complaining of pains that are ricocheting around their body and pretzeling themselves into strange postures. And, and screaming, as they will later do during the testimony in court, because the, the sound, I mean, the agony that's before people's eyes and the
0: screaming must have been so, so utterly um, destabilizing. When we're thinking about this bizarre eruption of behaviors in the parsonage girls, I think it's important that we know a bit more about the Paris household and their somewhat rocky position within the community. Paris had arrived as a minister to Salem in 1689 and his appointment was far from universally popular he's a difficult man he's a confrontational man he's
1: in, as we would put it i guess today he's a he's downwardly mobile he'd grown up amid luxury in barbados the ministry had not been his first choice of career he's driven a very hard bargain with the community in terms of his salary and he's still re- they are still reeling as is he from that negotiation the curtain rises with him essentially at odds with the community over which he has meant to minister because part of his salary as is, as was typical at the time is delivered in currency and part of his salary is delivered in firewood which sounds quaint until you remember how cold it wasn't is in new england and his community is very reluctant to deliver that load of firewood. And so here we are at the end of a winter, it's early on in his tenure in Salem, and the house is cold. And that is essentially when things begin to go slightly off the rails.
0: And off the rails is about right. So how did the hard-headed confrontational minister react when ungodly chaos erupted in his house? The idea that this might have been witchcraft
1: is not something that Paris lunges into. He comes at it fairly slowly or fairly reluctantly, I guess. And part of the question there would have been, would he have been embarrassed or would he have been delighted to recognize witchcraft in his own household and something, obviously, it's a question we can't answer, but it could be argued either way.
0: However, Paris felt about events. After weeks of fits, convulsion, barking and wailing from his daughter and his niece, the minister sought out help. It's thought that he called in the elderly local doctor, William Griggs, who confirmed the family's worst fears. That the issue was not medical, but supernatural. The result of an evil hand at work. As news of the girls' unnatural affliction spread, Griggs was not the only one to believe that witchcraft was to blame. Faced with the threat of an enemy in their midst, other members of the community had their own ideas about how to deal with the problem. Most significantly, a mother of five, Mary Sibley. And everyone is at this point a professed
1: expert, or everyone knows a certain amount about witchcraft. And a local woman who has decided well in advance of Paris coming to the conclusion that it's witchcraft has herself decided so, comes to the house and essentially arranges for a folk remedy or a folk diagnostic tool, which was a witch cake baked out of ashes and the dog's urine. It would help to indicate who was who the guilty parties were and what actually was at work. It's a superstition. That is done when Paris and his wife are out of the household, and much to his displeasure. But needless to say, the news of it circulates very quickly and helps to support the conclusion to which Paris is slowly coming, which is that this is indeed witchcraft that has bloomed somehow, has
0: landed somehow in his household. As Stacy mentioned there the baking of the witch cake enraged Samuel Parris when he learnt of it. As he later railed to his congregation, quote, By this means it seems the devil hath been raised amongst us, and his rage is vehement and terrible, and when he shall be silenced, the Lord only knows. With tension at a fever pitch, strange behaviours began to spread beyond the parsonage. Before long, Elizabeth Hubbard, the teenage great-niece of the visiting physician Griggs and the 12-year-old Anne Putnam, whose family were associates of the Parises, were also claiming to be bewitched. And within a couple of days, the urine-baked witch cake seemingly worked its magic, when the girls did indeed identify three witches living among Salem's unsuspecting villages. So as soon as you've established that
1: witchcraft is at work, it's incumbent on you to begin to name the witches, And the first three people who are accused or who are named are essentially the first three people in the community whom you might have thought to vote off the island. They are three very vulnerable women. First up, we have Sarah Good. A very feisty, um, profanity spewing beggar woman who is periodically homeless, and who tended to terrify the community generally. She would camp out in people's barns, and then she would, instead of thanking them, essentially curse them for their hospitality, and tended to terrify children. So made sense that she had, in some way, brought this upon herself. Next, there was Sarah Osborne, who is a villager who had been very litigious. She's a widow. She had sued over her husband's estate. And then she had gone on to marry her farmhand, who was an Irishman. Maybe maybe that's connected. Maybe it's not connected. We'll never know. And I should say that part of the mystery of Salem is that the community gossip doesn't doesn't leave in any indelible trace. So we're not privy to what actually is motivating a lot of these accusations and a lot of these
0: um, grievances among the villagers. And finally there was a member of the parsonage household, someone known intimately to the afflicted girls, a woman called Tituba, who is the slave in the Paris household
1: and who had been with the family for years and who would have been living in very close quarters with the family, who had been sleeping in the same room probably as the girls, who'd been making meals with the girls, who'd been preparing meals alongside the girls. So it's was very, very close, obviously, to them. She prays with the family, she eats with the family, and who turns out to be a master storyteller. But in any case, three women who were definitely no one's idea of the
0: favorite members of the community. Let's return to Tichuba for a moment. I think it's important to mention here that historians have debated what her ethnic background was. While she was traditionally represented as an African-American, it's more recently been suggested that Tituba was in fact an indigenous American, probably from South America. On the 29th of February... An arrest warrant was issued for Tichuba, along with Good and Osborne, and the three were interrogated. Good and Osborne were defiant. They had no association with the devil, employed no familiars in animal form, and had not used magic to hurt anyone. But things changed when the magistrates John Haythorn and Jonathan Corwin interrogated Tichuba. Unlike the other two women, she confessed. And not only that... Tituba took the girl's accusations and ran wild with them, sharing a sensational account of supernatural goings-on. She reeled off tales of flying on a stick, translucent cats, and witches transforming into wolves. When Tituba delivers her kaleidoscopic
1: testimony, she is incredibly generous with the details. So she never names an animal without mentioning what color it was. She... Can describe every person. She has an answer to every question. When she's asked, you know, what kind of book was that by the person who's who's deposing her, she has an answer to the question. She's clearly been somewhat prepped or tortured, depending on how you look at it, in the days she's been held in
0: custody. She has a flair for storytelling and she exploits it to the most. In one of the most significant moments of her testimony, recorded by several people in the room at the time, Tituba described an encounter with a malevolent man in a dark serge coat, carrying a yellow bird. This, the villagers knew, was Satan himself. He had also transformed himself into cats, dogs and hogs in Tituba's presence. He had threatened to decapitate her if she did not submit to him, promise to keep their contract a secret and torture the girls on his behalf. And perhaps most significantly of all, the ominous man in black was accompanied by shape-shifting accomplices, two of which Titchuba identified as her fellow accused, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Titchuba's motivations for weaving such a colourful story remain cloudy. We don't know, for example, to what extent she was induced or forced into doing so. But in implicating Good and Osborne so sensationally, Tituba had sealed their fates. After nine weeks languishing in a freezing prison cell, Osborne would die in jail. Good would later be sent to the gallows. And in providing such lurid, vivid detail and widening the net by accusing others, Tituba's confession lit a fire under the community's fears. After hearing that testimony,
1: two men immediately see this unearthly creature um, by the side of the road, but I think it would be very difficult to go home and not begin to sort of see the blotch on the ceiling turning into something else. It's a very convincing piece of testimony. It's taken down by some of the more eminent members of the community. There was clearly a lot writing on this testimony. There are three court reporters waiting to take it down, so they were expecting something explosive or colorful, and they got it. And I, I think it would have been hard on hearing that. I think it would have been very hard for a villager to resist.
0: And you can see why because here was proof that witches were active in the villagers' midst. With Tichba's testimony, it seemed as if Pandora's box had been opened.
1: Essentially, two kinds of contagion begin immediately. There's the contagion of symptoms, um, which is to say that other adolescent girls living not far from the Paris household begin to demonstrate the same disconcerting symptoms. So there really does seem to be some kind of epidemic at work. And at the same time, fingers begin to be pointed in several directions at once. And for example, one of the next people accused is a very pious, almost doctrinaire member of the church, a farm woman named Martha Corey, middle-aged, lives down the road, has not really been at odds with anyone. If anything, she's maybe a little too fond of of, of scripture. No other discerning characteristics that have come down to us. And that, again, is part of the mystery here so much so that when she's named two members of the community, her church deacon and another man, go to see the little girl who accuses her and say, are you certain that you mean to accuse Martha Corey? And the girl will say, yes, you know." I, she'll swear up and down, this is this is the person who was afflicting her, which was the word always used. And then the, the two callers will say to the girl, well, can you tell us when she came to afflict you, what she was wearing? And at that point, The child says, um, no, because she blinded me at that moment. So I can't tell you. At this, the two men ride off to essentially tell Martha Corey that she has been named as a witch. And when they arrive at her doorstep, she has the unhappy idea of saying, I know why you're here. You're here to accuse me of witchcraft. So already they're thinking, gee, how did you come to that conclusion so quickly? They say you've been accused and they tell her who has accused her. And very quickly she says, but did she tell you what I was wearing? And this seems to them uncannily prescient that she had thought to ask the question that they had just asked, which is, of course, the obvious question. But it seems to indicate that she has some foreknowledge of what's about to happen, and that makes her a little more suspect.
0: Variations on Martha Corey's story proliferated across the community, as more people emerged with complaints of demonic afflictions or hideous visions, and ever more people found themselves implicated. And as accusations continued to escalate, the overarching narrative of supernatural activity that surrounded them also began to develop. I think you can boil
1: the narrative down to almost sort of three stations. One is Tituba, who gets the ball rolling with this extraordinary, detail-packed testimony, and then it sort of stutters along until we get to Abigail Hobbs, who's a fourteen-year-old bad girl from a neighboring village. And who has been at odds with her parents, and who will cough up the tale, which becomes the larger narrative. She's the first person to um, implicate the, the former minister, and once she begins to implicate the former minister, that the story takes on a different tilt and and a different proportion, because no longer is it simply a question of witchcraft being practiced; it's a question of a satanic sabbath. And that's something completely new to New England. This has never happened before. And it's explosive.
0: The former minister Stacy mentioned there was George Burroughs, who'd been appointed in 1680 and served the community for three years. Nine years after leaving Salem, in May 1692, Burroughs was arrested in Maine and brought back to his former community to stand trial. He was accused of being the ringleader of a satanic conspiracy. Burroughs' story is a fascinating one, so we'll hear much more about him in later episodes. And as the year progressed, ever more villagers found themselves accused. There was Martha's husband, Giles Corey, the respected matriarch, Rebecca Nurse, her sister, Sarah Cloyce, and Elizabeth Proctor, who was followed by her husband, John, when he defended her against accusations. And before long, claims of demonic activity began to multiply and spread.
1: Also, and again, the momentum is building, um, the velocity is building with each of these retellings, the story then begins to spread to other communities so that, of course, what we talk about as a Salem witch trials really involves 20 some odd communities, but it especially spreads to neighboring Andover, which is a town which has problems of its own, but where you have, for example, a family where a mother, a daughter, and a grandmother all end up confessing in vivid detail to having attended this satanic Sabbath. And at that point, again, that's almost the sort of the third station. Because they paint this extraordinary picture of flying on sticks to the Sabbath, which is officiated over by the former Salem minister, the story takes on 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 a political tint and spreads to these
0: other communities with great velocity. And some of the testimonies that emerged described truly remarkable supernatural occurrences.
1: There's a man who stays home from meeting one day, from, from church one day, and maybe that has nothing to do with it, but somehow I think it does, who is convinced that his next-door neighbor is a witch. And he, while he's sitting quietly at home, this essential this goblin of a creature, it really does sound like a goblin from his description, although he doesn't use that word, comes in and he grapples with it and they have this you know, knock-down, drag-out fight together and then it flies through the window and knocks the apples off his tree. There's a man who, when he thinks that the chief perpetrator in this entire business has been arrested and is in custody in town, goes home and sees what sounds like a glow-in-the-dark jellyfish in his fireplace. There are a tremendous number of translucent cats They're just, it's like, it's literally like a repository of crazy, of of beasts, as if you took one of those flip books where you can attach the different parts of an animal and glue them all together. That's what some of this testimony sounds like.
2: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
0: So how can we begin to account for this? Was it partly a case of people just jumping on the bandwagon? I think that it's very hard for us to figure
1: out who's telling, who's recycling an old grudge, who's trying to explain why he can't find the kitchen scissors, who's trying to wreak revenge on his neighbor for a long-held, in several cases, um, generations-long controversy, and who actually has just basically been a victim of the power of suggestibility. There's clearly a contagion to this in the sense that, and you can trace it almost among those who
0: testify, and and this is before anybody starts getting badgered into testifying. And we'll be delving into the motivations behind accusations in much more depth throughout the series. By spring, the threat posed by witchcraft in Salem had become so serious that urgent action was deemed necessary to deal with the issue. And so, on the 27th of May, the governor of Massachusetts, William Phipps, established a brand new court to deal specifically with the trials. This was known as the Court of Oyer and Terminer. It's unusual name meaning to hear and determine. It takes a long time for...
1: The first case is to be tried. There has to be a special witchcraft court essentially assembled to try the cases. And that court has to decide also what kind of evidence it's going to accept. A panel of very eminent justices is put together. None of these men, I should add, as was true everywhere in Massachusetts in 1692, has, has a legal degree, but they are the most eminent members, the most learned members of, of the community. They consult with the experts as they will do throughout the trials, the experts being ministers, in this case. And they are led by William Stoughton, who is hands down the best legal expert in the colony. He's the person you went to if you had a question of law. He's the person you went to if you needed a case adjudicated in or out of court. Um, He's everybody's first choice of of a legal authority. The stature of those men in a town like Salem or to a villager from Salem would be impossible to overestimate. These are really the pillars of the community. They are the sort of political infrastructure of the world around them. And the, and the Salem villagers who really live in this little outpost on, on the frontier live in awe of these men. So for anyone having to appear before them, it would have been a very daunting experience regardless of the nature of the accusations.
0: The Court of Oyer and Terminer set up shop in Salem's two-storey brick townhouse. A panel of seven eminent local figures acted as judges, led by the Lieutenant Governor of the province, William Stoughton, who was acting as Chief Judge. We'll explore the atmosphere of the court and the failings of those who ran it in a later episode. But for now, you should know that this would have been an immensely intimidating environment for those on trial left to defend themselves under interrogation by some of the most powerful men in the colony. One of the first to be tried was Bridget Bishop. Then in her 50s, with a history of misdemeanors, Bishop had formally appeared before local justices on accusations of theft. She had even previously been tried and then acquitted for killing her husband by means of witchcraft. Bishop was charged with having, quote, hurt, tortured, afflicted, Pined, consumed, wasted and tormented the village girls. Witnesses at her trial reported hearing her boast of murders and even recounted visitations from the ghosts of her victims. On the 10th of June, Bridget Bishop became the first to be executed for witchcraft that year at Salem, hanged at a location now known as Proctor's Ledge, near the base of Gallows Hill. Many more were to follow. The trials progressed and more death sentences were issued. On July the 19th, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe and Sarah Wilds followed Bishop to the noose. They were joined by one of the very first accused, the fiery, profanity-spewing Sarah Good. According to legend, she railed at her executioners, threatening, quote, "'If you take my life, God will give you blood to drink.'" On the 19th of August, five more were hanged, including John Proctor and George Burroughs, the former minister charged with overseeing the Satanic Sabbath. And a month later, on the 19th of September, the trials reached what was perhaps their grim peak. As Giles Corey, the husband of Martha who we spoke about earlier, Face the brutal consequences for refusing to enter a plea in response to accusations against him. Giles
1: Corey is interesting in that as soon as Martha is accused, he will, um, wasting very little time, essentially say, You know, she's been acting strangely, and I had a feeling maybe she was a witch. Um, not the only husband who will do that. And then, when lo and behold, months later, he too is accused, he will stand his ground. And in fact to the to the extent that and in, in, in this he's alone, he will not enter a plea either innocent or guilty with the court, and because of that, he suffers a horrific fate, which is that he's pressed to death by stones, which was the crazy primitive method of dealing with someone who wouldn't cooperate with the demands of the court and that happens in full view of the public, and I think makes I think it's toward the end of the trials, and it may in fact have some bearing on how the trials come come to the, come to finally end. And two weeks later, Martha is, or weeks later, Martha goes to her death as well, having obviously
0: just recently been widowed. Along with Martha Corey, seven others were hanged that day in September. They were the last to be executed for witchcraft in Salem. How did all of this come to a conclusion? How did this rapidly spreading fire finally burn itself out? The accepted wisdom has always been
1: that when the accusations begin to land at two prominent doors, at the doors of people who are very prominent, things begin to the enthusiasm begins to dampen because, of course, the authorities have no interest in pursuing um, this particular line of inquiry. I think that's part of it. I mean, certainly they have. There have been wealthy men accused since the be- almost the beginning, so that's not all of it. I think it's a number of things. I think at a certain point, yes, the accusations come too close to home for various people. I think that Giles Corey, having been pressed to death, has something to do with it. It's so horrific. I think the horror of Giles Corey and the enormity of the accusations begins to make people ask questions. Could there really be this many witches in Massachusetts? It it isn't 50 witches anymore. It's not 100 witches anymore. Now we're up to 300 witches. At one point, I think someone says 500 witches. This is not a hugely populated, you know, colony. Could there really be that many witches? So I think to some extent, the dimensions begin to defy logic. The initial outbreak is in January. We're now in the fall. It's gone on for quite a while. And I think people are finally, finally, people are beginning to allow themselves to ask questions. Until that point, of course, it's become too dangerous to criticize the trials in any way or raise any doubts whatsoever about witchcraft, which was a very Easy way to get yourself accused. Anyone who doubts is immediately, almost immediately, winds up in court. And the other thing that may well have played a role is that it's getting to be winter, and this is the time of year when no one really has time for a day spent in court listening to witchcraft testimony because he really should be home, haying his field and tending his crops, or he's not going to make it through the subsequent winter. So there may actually be just a you know a sheer practical element to this. At, at this point, the new governor does reach out to ministers elsewhere. He reaches out to, the, to ministers in New York, and he gets a slightly different answer from, he, than the, from the one he's hearing in Massachusetts.
0: That may also play a role because he's reached beyond the colony. On October the 29th, after reaching beyond the colony, as Stacy puts it, and no doubt influenced by accusations emerging against his own wife, Governor Phipps dissolved the Court of Oyer and Terminer. But this wasn't quite the end of things a superior court was established to try the remaining witchcraft cases. And after trials resumed in January 1693, eight more death warrants were issued. But Phipps, beginning to doubt the court's ability to distinguish guilt from innocence, reprieved those who'd been sentenced. And by May 1693, any remaining suspects still imprisoned were pardoned.
1: So much of this has to do with how much the New England ministry and the civic officials are in lockstep. They're, none of them is willing to step out of line with the others. But once Governor Phipps does reach to the New York ministers, that begins to somewhat break the, the lock that the Massachusetts men have on the, on the crisis. So there are a number,
0: obviously, there are a number of contributing factors. You may be wondering at this point what happened to Tituba, whose incredible testimony sparked this whole thing off. Well, after more than a year in jail, an unknown person paid her bail, and she walked free. As the final suspects returned home and the courts dissolved, Salemites were left to come to terms with what had happened. And they were faced with deep and painful divisions sown between neighbours and even within families. Think about it. People have to go back to living with relatives who have
1: accused them. So people go home to sit down to dinner, to pray next to their accusers, which is just a horrifying thought. People go back to homes where their mothers are, not you know, are absent because they've accused their mothers.
0: I mean, just the, the familial horror is is one piece of it. But while the trials may have come to an end, the beliefs behind them endured. The belief in witchcraft will survive the trials. And I think that's something we tend to forget.
1: Everyone's willing to believe that they have Indeed, condemned innocence that they have indeed hanged innocence, but no one's willing entirely to let go of the idea of witchcraft for quite for, for some time still. So the feeling is there was witchcraft at work. Maybe we just overreacted. Maybe we just you know hanged the wrong people. But the fundamental belief will endure.
0: By the time that events dwindled to a close in 1693, more than a year after the Parsonage girls had first begun to twitch and moan. 20 people had been executed. Another five had died in prison and up to 200 people had been accused. Historians have long sought to explain how and why this could have happened. And that's the question that we'll be grappling with over the following episodes. Next episode, we'll be looking at a community under siege. From the threat of attack to the looming spectre of starvation. And we'll be asking... Could bad weather really lead to witchcraft accusations? Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written, researched and presented by me, Ellie Cawthorne, and produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking is by Josette Reeves. BBC History Magazine editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast.